no place to go. First, let us invite God to join with us in this presentation so we may feel the presence of his Holy Spirit. Please bow your head with me in prayer. O loving God, as we open thy holy word, please enrich our understanding and impress its meaning in a mighty way upon us that we pray for knowledgeable obedience to all thy commands. Amen. Now the focus of this message is centered in our text, which is found in Luke 14, 23. And the Lord said unto his servant, Go into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. As an introduction, you may think my sermon a little bit strange with the title, No Place to Go. So perhaps I should do some explaining. Some time ago, I received a phone call from Indiana. One of God's true saints was on the line, and she had a question for me. She seemed to have a very serious problem. Pastor, she began, I've no place to go. What am I going to do? For a moment, I was speechless. I was not sure that I was hearing this woman correctly. Some of you know that sometimes I have a problem hearing on the telephone. So I asked this lady, what do you mean you have no place to go? It was then that she began to explain what she meant. The church where she attended had gone full celebration. The music was horrible, in her words, syncopated by the beating of drums. No longer did she feel a spirit of divine worship, but rather that of another spirit. She continued, and the eleven o'clock drama has filled God's house with a spirit of excitement and entertainment. And the pastor's message is nothing but psychology and new theology. What she wanted to hear when she attended church was the simple preaching of the Word of God and to feel God's divine presence in the worship service. The result was that she felt that she could no longer attend her home church. So she decided to look elsewhere. Can you imagine her surprise after visiting other nearby churches in the city where she lived to discover to her amazement that these two were all caught up in the fervor of celebration? Then someone told her of a small country church 
some 20 miles from the city out in the country. So the next Sabbath, they drove to this little church, thinking that they would find a place to worship God in a pure Seventh-day Adventist atmosphere that would be distinct from the world, truly God's remnant church. As they arrived at this little country church, a nice-looking gentleman kindly greeted them, but on entering the church sanctuary, she noticed banners hanging on the chapel walls and displayed on the pulpit, the same kind that you would see in the churches of Babylon. She was also amazed to see ladies leading out in the Sabbath school who had large earrings dangling from their ears. But a bigger surprise awaited them, for suddenly they noticed that many of the ladies in the audience were wearing gold necklaces with sizable gold crosses attached to them. She and her family began to wonder if they had entered the wrong church. Perhaps this was a Sunday-keeping church. But then they remembered that this was indeed the Sabbath day. They felt so out of place and so disappointed that they got up and walked out. As they left, the man that had greeted them upon their arrival approached them and asked, why are you leaving? You just came in. Politely, they began to explain when he broke in with the words, Oh, the members of this church pride themselves on being very liberal. Then he continued, I know that you are leaving because of the jewelry. Then he added, I too am very much concerned. Then the lady said, why don't you speak up and do something about it? But he just shrugged his shoulders as if nothing could be done about it. So the lady and her family drove away and stopped by a nearby hill. There in the midst of nature, they spread a blanket and listened to one of my tapes for a Sabbath sermon. Once more she lamented, O oh, pastor, how I miss my good old Seventh-day Adventist church. I long to attend where I know God's blessing is waiting. But pastor, I have no place to go. And that just broke my heart. Let me tell you something, friend. What happened to this lady and her family is happening in other places. I'm getting calls from the north, the south, the east, and the west with like experiences. This is so sad. It's certainly a tragic situation. Some time ago, in a nearby church, the conference speaker began his tirade by belittling God's last-day prophet with these words, 
this little old lady. As he continued his antics, he revealed that he was not inspired by God and that he was opposed to God's last day prophet. So I walked out with my wife, and so did a number of others. Later, my wife told me that she became so depressed that week that she didn't want to go back there anymore. And I felt the same. Shortly after this experience, I happened to meet a man who had been baptized recently by the pastor of this church. I asked him why he didn't go to that church anymore. He answered, When I joined the church, I thought I was joining a church that had left Babylon. But last Christmas, I found so much paganism in the church, and the sermons that I listened to given by my pastor week after week were exactly the same as I used to hear in the church that I left when I joined the Adventist church. And so it goes. We all want to go to a church to worship God. We want to go to a church where the pastor is preaching a spirit-filled message from God's Word that helps us to get ready for the coming crisis. My mind began to recount how God had told us that such things would happen within our church in the end time. Two parties would be found within a church that was once united. One group would cry and sigh for the abominations seen within the church. The other would stress the need to compromise so that we could be more attractive to the surrounding church members. And this, they thought, would make our church more acceptable to non-Adventists. I've searched my Bible and the spirit of prophecy, and I have not found one statement or counsel where we are instructed to leave the Seventh-day Adventist Church. On the contrary, we are told that in the shaking process, God will develop a people who will obey and follow his instructions, and that he will soon take hold of the reins and clean house. And we are told to stay by the ship and exert every influence for good as long as we can. But I hear someone ask, what are the faithful historic Adventists to do in the meantime? For more and more the church is disfellowshipping the very ones who are crying and sighing over the abominations so prevalent within some of our churches today. And then, and then it struck me. Perhaps God is trying to tell his faithful few that we are nearing the time of trouble when we shall be forced to go from door to door with our Bibles in our hand 
visiting our neighbors and those in the surrounding countryside to explain to them our peculiar faith and to study the scriptures with those who are interested. This is to be done in preparation for a soon coming Sunday law when we will be the only when this will be the only way in which we can obey the law of the land and still be faithful to our God. I don't know about you, but I am becoming more aware that God is shutting the door of mercy upon his compromising church and opening the door to his faithful few who are lamenting the abominations of celebration, that they may begin a long awaited house-to-house missionary work to our surrounding neighborhoods on Sabbath afternoon in preparation for Sunday missionary work, which the church has failed to do in a time of ease on the Sabbath day. I believe there are thousands upon thousands just waiting to hear the truth of the three angels' messages. What an opportunity to start branch Sabbath schools and Bible studies once again as we used to do. And we can personally visit the needy with packages of love and start being concerned for those who are sick and to obtain necessary training for medical missionary activity. Who knows? But it could be that God is just waiting for you to start a brand Sabbath school of new believers without any celebration and drama, a place where you will never again feel a need to say, I have no place to go. In fact, I feel an urgency for a great soul-winning program to commence among the historic Adventists. Just listen to what God had to say in our text found in Luke 14:21. The master of the house being angry said unto his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. You see, this master was deeply concerned. This is a very serious crisis. What's the problem all about? Well, this is a very kindly king. He loves his people above everything else. So he decided to make a great feast. Invitations are sent out to everybody. The supper is ready with every detail cared for. But what a rude awakening. The invited people have other plans. They all give some kind of a weak excuse, thinking they have a reason for refusing this wonderful invitation. Herein is the crisis, for not a single guest came to the banquet. And the king had spent a fortune for this supper.
But the truth is, the stability of his kingdom is involved. The refusal to accept his invitation, the king considers to be rebellion. For this invitation involves the wedding of his son. In the fullest sense, to refuse to attend is looked upon by the king as treason. Now the question, what will the king do about this? He is a godly king with his rulership based on love. So he executes a plan to solve the problem. He will reveal his mercy, his long-suffering, and his loving care. Since the first effort failed, he will try again. And at any cost, the supper must be attended by guests. His determination is absolutely amazing. His attitude should electrify all who bear his name. So he gives this challenging command. Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And friend, this is God's command for you and me today. Each word throbs with power. There is something about these words that arouses the sluggish heart. The appeal is something special. Let's take a closer look. Will you notice the words? All things are now ready. I'm reading Luke 14, 16, and 17. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper, and bade many. And he sent his servants at the supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, all things are now ready. Likewise, God also predicted a list of conditions that must take place here on this earth. So it could also be said to the world, all things are now ready. May I give you a quickie as a reminder? For instance, take the increase of knowledge. Eighty percent of all scientists that ever existed on the face of this world are alive today. This is what made it possible when Apollo 13 got off course some 250,000 miles from Earth. Its correction was accomplished in 84 minutes by just one man at the computer. Talk about destruction coming by war. You may be startled to know <clears throat> that Russia still has over a thousand nuclear warheads pointed at some of our larger cities in America. The effects would be so complete as to destroy every living being in the United States. Talk about famine. This world has now reached a population of between six and seven billion inhabitants. We can expect a massive famine in the Orient and in Africa. 
employment. One out of every four workers in the world is unemployed today. Disease. There are scores of new outbreaks that are terrible. I'll mention one. One hundred million will die of AIDS. And listen to this. Today, one out of every 30 college students tests positive to the HIV virus. Disasters? Why we hear so much of these that we become unconcerned when we hear that thousands have died. Divorce? When I was a boy, one out of three marriages ended in divorce. Today, it's one out of every two. I'm sure that you will agree that this is terrible. But consider Russia, where divorce is 26% higher than it is in the United States. And consider the morals. We now have 10 million homosexuals in America. But when you look at that tiny, small country of Holland, it boasts of 13 million homosexuals. Well, I could go on. This world has indeed become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Surely the earth is ready for Christ to come and destroy the sinners and those who are supposedly saints. This is the end time for sure. The supper must be supplied with guests. There is much to be done by you and me. No wonder God says, go. You know, it's such a little word if numbered by letters. It's just two letters long. But it commands obedience in faith. And this command will fill every seat at the feast. Remember, go, scattered the disciples abroad after the Savior's crucifixion, and they finished their task in one generation. But somehow today, we've come to a place where we like to juggle the wording of Scripture. We would like to change the spelling of inspiration. There are those among us who would spell G-O with the letters L-O-O-K. And they look at this troubled world until their eyes fill with tears. But they do nothing. Some would spell G-O with the letters W-R-I-T-E. So they sit down at their desk in a comfortable chair and depend on the mailman to go and deliver the letter. And then there are others who insist that we can accomplish the work of God by changing the word go to spell G-I-V-E. And so we satisfy the intent of God by giving an offering. Still others would spell G-O with the letters S-E-N-D, for they believe it best to work by proxy. After all, the preacher's paid for it. Let him do the work. 
He's better qualified. But friend, when God says go, he means you and me. He means every member of his church. Nothing less. And he means go out. And where is out? Into the streets and the lanes to wherever there is a Christian soul to be found, into the huts of poverty, into the camp of sin, into the abode of outcasts, into the castle of the rich, down the street to our neighbors. Preach the gospel to every creature. Go out to those who are the furthest from God, where you find the unregenerated heart, this is where we are to begin. It's our personal missionary field. But then I hear someone say, Elder Nelson, I don't know what to say. Then you had better not take your conversion for granted. For I read in Historical Sketches, page 291, everyone who is connected with God will impart light to others. If there are any who have no light to give, shall I read it? It is because they have no connection with the sense of light. You know, I well remember a preacher telling a story in which he made the statement that every Christian can win somebody to Christ. There was a poor seamstress in his church who worked early and late to feed her fatherless children. She remained after the service to talk with her pastor, and then she asked, This is the first time, pastor, that I've ever heard you say something that I felt was unfair. The pastor listened, and then he said, a word to the wise is sufficient. And he left her. You know, she began to think and to pray about it. She had no transportation. Then she thought about those who came to her home, asking her to sew for them. And then she thought about the milkman. This was in the days when the milk was delivered to the home. So the next morning she was up bright and early, and when she heard the rattle of the empty bottles at her door, she opened it, stammered a bit. The milkman thought that she had just got up, and he began to leave. When she finally got enough of her wits together and said, Wait, do you know Christ? The milkman almost dropped the empty bottles. For two nights, he had been despondent over his sins. Yes, he would love to come to her home and have Bible studies. Do you know, one year later, she presented her pastor with seven for baptism. I personally met a young man who lived in the Ozarks who had visited every home within 15 miles of where he lived. And let me tell you, there were many people living in this area. 
and he was giving a Bible study every night of the week. Furthermore, he held a regular job in a factory working five days a week. The truth is, Christ does not ask you to do something that he does not lead in that way. So let us listen to Christ's story, which he told himself. You will find this in Luke 10, 30 to 37. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Let's talk about this. You see, this poor fellow fell among thieves. Did you notice? He went down. Sin always leads down, 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 for sin leads to Jericho. But it's up, up to heaven in obedience to Jerusalem. It was on this road that this poor fellow finds himself with his back against Jerusalem, and he is facing the city of destruction. It was here that he is robbed. Those who are without Christ are being robbed. The world offers its tinseled pleasures, but they soon lose their appeal. For the enemy, the devil, robs and strips us, revealing our nakedness just as he did to Adam and Eve. You remember? They knew they were naked and sewed fig leaves together to make themselves aprons. What a horrible experience to be naked before God. And the devil wounds too. Sin's a cruel master. Every tear, every sigh, why the hospitals are full of the sick and the dying, all the result of sin, and the asylums, the penitentiaries, are full of the wounded, for sin is death, sin is murder.
But look closely. This man is in a pitiful condition. The scripture says he is half dead. That's what Satan does to those whom he captures. You know, I've always believed a man died in sin spiritually, that he was spiritually dead. Not just half dead, but completely dead. For the scripture says we are dead in trespasses of sin. Christ, in telling this story, is teaching us that sinners are dead in sin spiritually, but alive in the body. In other words, they are half dead. And only the great physician can resurrect in such a new life. But what about that Levite and the priest? Reading back again to Luke 10, 31, and by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. You see, this priest was on his way to the temple when he came near to this dying man, and he gets an eyeful, but he doesn't stop. How can he determine if this man is worthy of his help? He decides to report the matter when he gets to Jerusalem. Perhaps the Dorcas will help him. So he passes by. Next comes the Levite, a servant of God. His business is to conduct worship and to conduct ceremonies. He had better not get his robes dirty helping this poor wretch. After all, this man was at fault. He came down this road of sin, and the law had warned him not to engage in sin. How could love be extended to such a man? But wait, there is someone else coming. I read Luke 10:33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. This poor wounded man summons all of his strength to look but then he sinks down in despair. He can't expect any mercy from this person, for alas, this man is a Samaritan. And Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. But marvel of marvels, this Samaritan stops. Who is this fellow? You will remember a Samaritan was despised, rejected. He was part Jew, and part Gentile, and he represented none other than Jesus Christ himself, who was considered by many as a half-breed, for Jesus was born of God and of man. But please note carefully, this Samaritan Jesus was looking for someone in need of help. For the scripture states, he came where he was. The wounded man could not come to Jesus, for he was about to die. So Christ came to the wounded man, and he is prepared to help. Listen, 
Luke 19.10. And the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Paul further states in 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptations that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Furthermore, you will notice that Christ was carrying a medical kit. I'm reading Luke 10:34, And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and sat him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The oil? Nothing soothes and heals like the oil of the Holy Spirit. And the wine? A purifying remedy, the cleansing blood of Jesus. Yes, he had a regular first aid kit. This kit contained bandages, emollients, antiseptics, oil, the Holy Spirit, wine, the blood that cleanses from sin. And marvel of marvels, listen as he exchanges places with this poor man. For the wounded man is placed on the master's donkey to be carried to a hospital, the church. And he didn't leave the wounded man there to care for himself. Now isn't that just like Jesus? There he is looking down from heaven. Jesus sees a man's terrible condition, caught and wounded by sin. So he prepares himself for a trip to come down to earth by taking on humanity. And he travels down, down the road to Jericho to find sinners that he might save them. Are you aware of such individuals that are near where you live, who are half-dead, discouraged, their religion doesn't seem to answer their need. Friend, what they need is Jesus. What they need is the touch of the great physician, and God wants you to go and bring these individuals the good news of the Savior. In Luke 10:37, we read God's command, go and do likewise. Go. Go out into the streets and to the lanes of the city. Go where the lost are to be found. I'm reading from Desire of Ages, page 370. Love for God, zeal for his glory, love for fallen humanity brought Jesus to earth to suffer and to die. This was the controlling power of his life. And this principle he bids us adopt. And so I read, Go out and compel them to come in. Our text reads in Luke 14, 23, and Jesus said unto the servants, Go out into the highways and the hedges 
and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. And if your first effort fails, try again. Remember, you are offering a compelling force, a force of love, and God will stand by you and help you, for he has promised, go thou and do likewise. We must go and fetch them and bring them to the remnant church. But now I hear someone say, Brother Nelson, I don't feel free to invite individuals to my present church. It's become too much like Babylon. All right. Then go and start a home church by personal visitation in giving Bible studies until you have a group where the Spirit of God is manifested. Remember, dying men cannot come to the inn by themselves. So don't leave it to the minister, the radio, the TV, you name it. God has given you the means you will need. The two pence. I'm reading Luke 10:35. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. What is the two pence? The oil and the wine. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God. In fact, you have access to every power that Christ possessed. And remember also, these words encourage obedience. For he said, when I come, I will repay. And you know he's coming soon, very soon. So be true to your Savior. Keep the faith. Obey his command. This do, and thou shalt live. Luke ten thirty-seven. And so the command, if you are truly converted, if you have truly found Christ, if you are washed in his blood and filled with the oil of his spirit and bathed in his love, then go, go out. Go into the streets and the lanes. Go out and compel them to come that my house may be filled, that Christ may come. Don't stand around and cry, I've no place to go. Start a branch Sabbath school that will eventually become a place of worship. Remember, I'm reading Bible Echo 1901. God requires everyone to be a worker. Testimonies 9, page 103. God demands that every soul who knows the truth shall seek to win. Testimonies 9, page 30. God expects personal service from everyone. Desire of Ages, page 142. We must participate in his love for their redemption. So, go. Go out quickly into the streets 
and the lanes of the city and compel them to come. Let us pray. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us thy example of how thou didst leave thy heavenly home to come to this sin-cursed earth to share God's great love with us. Please, give us the love and the courage to go and do likewise. Amen.